We're going to come to a time now in a service. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means and why it matters and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, if you would turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, if you're using a Brown Pew Bible, it's on page 414. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read this passage for us. The author here is stated to be a guy named Asaph, and he says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. Tight buns and six-pack abs. They are free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes iniquity. The evil conceit of their minds know no limit. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in their wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been plagued. I've been punished every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me till. If you have a few underlying words in your Bible, underline this word till. If you're using a brown pew Bible, don't. But underline this word till. So significant here. It was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them, this is the wicked, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. It's God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's spirit to come and speak to us now as we look at this passage from his word. Spirit of God, we know you have already been present with us here this morning. We just ask that you would continue to remain with us that you would now open up our minds and our hearts to receive what you want to speak to us today from your word. God, you tell us plainly 
That when you send out your word, it doesn't return back to you void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you send it. Will God accomplish that purpose in each one of us today? And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Um, among couples, anyways, one of the more common questions people ask as they're trying to get to know you is to tell them the story of how you met. How did you two meet? How, well, what's the story of you and Sarah? How did you guys meet each other? That, you know, people ask this question. And although the details of how uh, Sarah and I got together are still contested, even between the two of us to this day, one of the things that remains constant, undeniably true about the first day I met my wife is that it involved a moment that nearly changed the entire course of our relationship. I'm not going to bore you with all the details. Let's grab a coffee sometime. Let's go out for dinner and we'll, we'll give you the, the director's cut. But the short version is that um, I had noticed Sarah sitting down at the end of the pew that Sunday morning as she came in. And my brother-in-law, who happened to be attending the same church that I was at the time, noticed me noticing her pretty much throughout the entire service. And so afterwards, uh, the service ends, she's, she's leaving, and I'm kind of watching her go, and my brother-in-law comes over to me. He's like, hey, why, why don't you run and welcome that newcomer to our church? Very subtle, you know, as he is. To which I said no. I said, no. Now, hear me, not... not not for a moment, not for a second, because I didn't absolutely want to. Totally I did. It was just that, honestly, at that moment in my life, I was just kind of done with relationships. I needed to just kind of step back and just kind of reorient, just kind of, what, what, what am I doing here? What's, what's going on here? And yet, a moment later, kind of my perspective, I don't know what it was, just shifted, and I was like, no, no, I need to meet her. I need to meet this girl. So this then began what is now the stuff of legends, where I... Ended up like running like three city blocks to catch up to her because I'd taken so long to make up my mind, and I guess she just walks fast. Finally caught up with her, and that was the day of our meeting. If you ever drive by Broadway and come back on the southwest corner, you can see the place of this momentous occasion. <laughs> As I look back on this moment now, though, what's incredible to me to think about is that it's just how, how close I came how close I came to losing every single precious memory, every single precious experience that we've had, that our family has had. All these things would have been gone. Everything that I treasure today, 15 years later, I could have just lost like that in a moment if I'd chosen differently. I could have lost it all. And I nearly did if I had not chosen differently. Well, we are continuing in this teaching series we began last week through the book of Psalms entitled Every Last Key, exploring together this transforming reality that the God who made us and formed us also is interested in us. He, he, he's, he cares about, he wants to speak his life into every last part of us, even the parts of us that we don't think are presentable to him. He wants all of it, and that's what the book of Psalms is so good at teaching us and showing us. He wants to speak his life into all of us. Again, if you were to picture your life as a house, God wants us to give him the key to every last room. Last week we learned from Psalm 1 about the truth that God wants us to bring him our focus, which probably wasn't too surprising a revelation to anybody. What we're going to look at 
today learn from Psalm 73 is that God also wants us to bring him our envy. He wants us to bring him our feelings of envy, which I'm just going to go out on the limb and assume that that's a little bit more surprising discovery for you, that that's in the Bible. God wants us to bring him our envy? What? Yes. Which is exactly what we're going to see exemplified here in this demonstration of really incredible vulnerability, where the psalmist reveals a moment in his life where he too nearly lost everything that was precious to him. A moment where he nearly made a decision that changed the entire course of his relationship with God. And the thing, the circumstances that led this man, Asaph, to nearly abandon the way of the righteous and choose instead to walk in the way of the wicked was what we see there in verse 3 of the passage. It was envy. He became envious that as he scrolled through the Facebook and Instagram feed of the most godless friends he had and, and, and just compared their experience with his own and just saw this massive disparity that it, he became embittered in heart. And so much so that he nearly lost the foothold of his faith. We're going to dig into this more deeply as we get going here, but big picture, one of the things that makes this psalm still so incredibly relevant for us to look at today is because it answers the question of apparent injustice that every single one of us here likely has asked or will ask at some point in our lives, namely, why do bad things happen to good people? The only difference is that Psalm 73 kind of takes it from the other end of the spectrum, and it asks the question, helps us to understand, why do such good things happen to such bad people? Why do such good things happen to people who, who don't follow the rules? People who don't uh, uh, delight themselves in God's law or walk in the way of the righteous that we looked at last week in Psalm 1. In the end, what the question Asaph is really exploring and seeking to answer here, as one commentator put it, is this. Is godliness worthwhile? Or is it just a waste of time? Along with exploring the answer to that question as it relates to the focus of this series, what we're also shown in Psalm 73 is how the psalmist brings these feelings of envy to God. He gives God the, the key to the door marked envy in his heart rather than just uh, stewing it on himself, like kind of brooding on this envious feeling or discouraging other faithful believers with it. He brings it to God, and as he does that, what we see is that Asaph finds the very same truths revealed to him that can bring comfort and rest to our own hearts today whenever we look around and are provoked to the very same feelings of envy that he has. So in order to help us understand the circumstances that led the psalmist to feel envious, as well as how that feeling of envy was transformed when he brought it to God, I want to look at our passage this morning in just two ways. We're going to look at the disorienting display and then the reorienting revelation. Just these two ways. Disorienting display, the reorienting revelation. So if you closed your Bibles, would you open them up again to that psalm? Psalm 73, follow along with me as we look at what it means to bring God your feelings and your experience of envy. Okay, let's look first of all at the disorienting display. The disorienting display. Now, if you look at verse 1, first of all, what you see is that the psalmist begins this whole psalm with kind of a declaration of sorts about what he believes to be the goodness of God to his people. He's good to those who seek to walk 
according to his ways. And I believe he begins that way because he wants to indicate right from the start that everything he's going to say that follows this is a description of the struggle that he was going through, the struggle that he, he dealt with, but then has since returned to this position of trust in the goodness of God, which is why he can say words in verse 2 like, I, I nearly did this, I, I almost did this, when it comes to the idea of abandoning the way of the righteous completely. But when you come to verse 3, what you see is also a plain confession of falling where it did occur. Notice he says this, for I envied the arrogant. Not, I almost envied them, I, I was tempted to envy. No, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And then as you read on, you see how he continues to describe this prosperity that he saw that so provoked him. Look with me now, verses 4 and 5. He says, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong, they are free from the burdens common to man, they're not plagued by human ills, provokes them to envy. Now, that very first description at the beginning of verse 4, almost, if you're like me, makes you kind of want to discount the rest of his description altogether, because you almost want to be like, come on, Asaph, seriously? They have no struggles? Clearly that's not true. Of course they do. Everyone does. Of course they do. This is kind of like, you know, when you were a kid and you would complain to your parents about the cool kids in school. Uh, Johnny, he just, everything goes easy for him. His life is perfect. You know, you would say things like that. Well, it might be easy to chalk up that kind of description to just sort of an immature exaggeration. He's caught up in the moment. And yet, as you think about it, if you're honest, I think we'd have to admit that every single one of us here, we get caught up in this exact same pattern in our own lives as you start to scroll the highlight reel of your Facebook and Instagram friends and, and create a storyline that says, oh man, well, their, their life, their marriage, their, everything is perfect. They, they have no struggles and then consequently consume, like, I'm, I'm a failure at everything in life. That's, that's one of the dangers of social media because we, we just see the highlight reel and then we're like, oh, everything's perfect for them and I'm clearly sucking at everything. Forgetting the truth that we all of us know, everybody knows that what is presented to the world, what is put out there for broad consumption, whether that's in, in person or on social media, is often not at all a true picture of what's actually going on. Right? You almost never have the whole story when it comes to what you're seeing presented on the surface. And yet what's so crazy is that as you read on here, for so long have these people that Asaph envied been skating on the frozen lake with the sign beside it that says danger thin ice and not fallen through that now these people actually they kind of believe in that maybe they really are as kind of above the cut above the law as they appear to be look at verse 6 and following it says their pride is their necklace they clothe themselves with violence from their callous heart comes iniquity Evil conceits of their minds knows no limits. They scoff, they speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, people, their people turn to them and drink up the waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? And the sad result of seeing the apparent blessing on the lives of these people who were walking in defiant opposition to God and his law that nearly caused Asaph to slip, nearly caused him to lose the foothold of his faith, you see there in verse 13 and 14. He looks at all this 
blessing on these people who are not walking according to God's way. And he says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain I have washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been plagued. I have been punished every morning. And when you read something like that, can you honestly say that you've never had those exact same thoughts yourself? As you, as you try to strive daily to, to, with everything you have, just to walk the narrow path of the righteous, you, you're doing everything you can to, to just devote your, your life to God, try to follow His way, and, 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 and you're feeling lots of times like you're being beat down at every step that you try to take, only to look across the fence, look across the office or the classroom, and see the most godless person you know just living it up, having a great time. They're getting the promotion. They're getting the, the guy, the girl that you like. They, they're getting the cancer-free diagnosis. They're getting all the shiniest toys. And you just bitterly wonder to yourself, what am I doing? And if, if this is the, the results of following God and trying to live a, a godly life, what's the point? Am I just wasting my time? Have you ever, have you ever felt that way before? I know I have. It is disorienting when you see the apparent disparity all around us. And yet, what's so great about Psalm 73 is we have this unique opportunity to observe someone else experiencing all these same feelings that we have had or will have, and we get to look at it from an outside perspective. And I think as we do that, we're given a deeper appreciation and insight into the purpose as well as the goodness of God's commands, why he sets up his way the way he does. For all the way back, for instance, in the book of Exodus, when God is first laying out what he expects of his redeemed people, he says, one of his Ten Commandments, he says, you shall not covet. You shall not covet. Now, the purpose of that command is not to somehow exert some kind of domineering control over you. It's to free you. It's to protect you from feeling these exact same faith-crushing, short-sighted perspective ways that Asaph had here. When he looked around him, it's to protect you from looking across the fence and saying, oh, why isn't my life like that? Which, by the way, is also what makes it a good command. He's trying to protect you from feeling this way. Now, maybe you'd say, well, okay, well, that's great, but this psalm isn't about coveting. It's about envying. And you're right. But the truth is, is that envy is actually nothing more than a closely related cousin to coveting. Where coveting, we could say it is an inordinate persistent desire to have for yourself what belongs to someone else. Whereas envy, as pastor and author Tim Keller describes it, is to feel not just that the wicked don't deserve their good life, but that you do. And God hasn't been fair. I love that description of envy. Not just that they don't deserve a good life, but you do. I've been obeying you. I've been trying to follow you. I do deserve a good life. And envy is the result of feeling this way. And again, when you look at the psalmist's experience of envy from the outside, there definitely does seem to be a sense that not only does he see it as unjust that those who ignore God's law should, should live such good lives, but he also sees it as unjust that those who are seeking to follow God's law are not. Maybe many of you uh, might be familiar with uh, that story of uh, the missionary couple who were returning from their 40 years of service in Africa on a ship that happens to also uh, had the then U.S. President Teddy Roosevelt who was returning from a hunting trip. And as they pulled up to the port, there's this 
big you know, band celebration and everyone's welcoming him back. And these guys don't even have anyone to come and pick them up. And the husband becomes deeply pricked and, and embittered as he sees this. And, and he he's just can't fathom how a president returning from a hunting trip would be so celebrated and, and, and welcomed with all this celebration and fanfare. Well, them, after 40 years of faithfully serving God, don't even have anyone to pick them up from the ship. You know, the strange paradox of Psalm 73, and what's going to lead us into our next point here, is that for the ones seeking to follow God's way, to, to be after God's own heart, the presence and feeling of this envy, rightly acknowledged and expressed, is actually a powerful diagnostic tool in the life of a believer. And it's why we should bring it to God. And what I mean by that is this. When you recognize this feeling in your own heart, when you say, okay, I'm feeling this way, what that's revealing to you is actually the true state of your heart that you'd likely be unable to recognize in, in any other way. It's, it's, it's revealing the true nature of what's going on in your heart. It's, it's what some have called an unmasking of the heart. Because what it's showing you is either what has become or is in danger of becoming an idol in your heart. When you feel this way, and you can rightly acknowledge, I am feeling this way, it's exposing idols in your heart that maybe you couldn't see any other way. Again, Keller explains it this way. He says, you know you have the presence of an unseen idol in your heart if obedience to God is not a way of pleasing God, but rather a means of getting God to please me. He goes on, when we say to God, I'll serve you only if X happens, then it is X that we truly love, and God is just a necessary apparatus for obtaining it. That's what these feelings of envy are, are revealing in us. Now, that doesn't mean for a second that uh, when we see the injustice uh, of people who are living in defiance to God and His Word, still enjoying and indulging all of His good gifts, that it shouldn't provoke us. Nor does it mean that uh, there won't always be some part in us, as long as we live in this world, that isn't going to be tempted towards uh, coveting or envy as we see the freedoms, freedoms and indulgences that those who walk in opposition to God are enjoying. No, I mean, it, it is. It's a disorienting display to look at, and it can lead even the strongest among us to be in danger of losing the foothold of our faith. But what it does mean is that we are always need to remember that the goal of following Christ is Christ himself. That's the goal of following him. That, that, that the reward for our obedience is not Jesus plus the, the wish list that you happen to bring along with you. The, the, the reward is Jesus. You get Jesus. That's, that's the reward for obedience following him. The Apostle Paul said it this way, Philippians, uh, Philippians 3. He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ." What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. He's the reward of obedience. When we have Him, we have everything. But what it also means is that we also always need to be reminded that just as that embittered missionary was reminded by his wife that day as they returned home, that as long as we remain in this world, we're not home yet. You're not home yet. 
We need to always remember that as well before we feel like we haven't been rewarded for our obedience to Christ. Okay, that's the, the disorienting display. Last thing we'll look at together now is the reorienting revelation. The reorienting revelation. This is where we see Asaph kind of turn the corner, as it were, and emerge from this disorienting, slippery ground of envy and find a secure foothold once again for his faith. If you look, first of all, at verse 16, you see he confesses as he was trying to understand this apparent disparity between the ways that the wicked are walking and all the blessing they seem to have. He says, from his own perspective, as he tried to work it through himself, it was oppressive to him. It was like he was trying to carry this huge, awkward weight about like a desk up a slippery hillside. That, that the word in Hebrew for oppressive also carries with it the idea of a, a task that creates intense anxiety. But like the first hopeful rays of sunlight appearing on the horizon and then bursting into a glorious sunrise after a night filled with anxiety and fear, we read that incredible word that we talked about there at the beginning of verse 17, till. It was oppressive to me, he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Now, that term there, the sanctuary of God, that can either mean he went to the temple, he went to the place of where he could worship and meet with God, or if you understand the meaning of that word sanctuary, it could also mean uh, a sanctuary of God could mean a place of God's protection and safety and rest, which is supported by what Asaph says later on in verse 28. He says the sovereign Lord is his refuge. So it could simply mean that he just brought these feelings of envy to God in prayer. But regardless of whether it's one or the other or a combination of both, because prayer in this time and context was very often associated with the temple, the result, the result of this is a complete change of perspective on this oppressive faith-crushing circumstances that Asaph had previously observed. And in light of God's presence, he can now see both the ultimate end of those who walk in opposition to God's way, as well as the glorious end of those who continue to walk according to it. That's what he sees as he enters into God's rest and sanctuary. He can now see things much more clearly than he could before. We see this, first of all, in verses 18 through 20. In light of God's reorienting revelation first of all he says surely you place them on slippery ground you cast them down to ruin how suddenly they are destroyed completely swept away by terrors as a dream when one awakes so when you arise O lord you will despise them as fantasies which means ultimately what the psalmist had revealed to him is that the smooth seemingly easy path that those who walk in the way of the wicked is one day going to look dramatically different than it does presently that rather than just, you know, maybe it's going to get a little bit harder and more steep in one place, he's like, no, one day the ground is actually going to completely drop out from underneath them and they'll be swept away entirely. As one commentator put it, the psalmist realizes that the rich without God are on their way to being eternally poor, that the celebrities without God are on their way to being eternally ignored. Conversely, verses 22 through 26, in the light of God's presence also reveal both the blessed end of those striving to walk according to God's way, as well as the present care and comfort that God provides for them as they walk this narrow path of righteousness. You see, he says, uh, uh, verses uh, 23, actually, through 26, he says, yet I am 
always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Comparing the second half of verse 17 with the second half of verse 24 there where he says, uh, afterwards you will receive me into glory. Uh, Derek Kidner writes this. He says, their end, that, that final destiny, is literally their afterward, their future, which will unmake everything that they have lived for. And by contrast, the afterward of verse 24 will introduce quite a different and glorious prospect. This is what he's seeing as God reveals the true, what's truly going on here. So the first thing Asaph has revealed to him as he brings his envy to God is the final destiny of both ways, revealing that the way of the righteous, this narrow path of the righteous, truly is the best way to walk. It truly is worth walking in, despite whatever uh, momentary passing difficulties may be present. Why? Well, because the apparent blessings that the wicked are presently enjoying are also just as momentary and passing. As great as it looks right now, it's not going to last. But the blessings and the promises that God gives, they truly do last forever. Second thing Asaph has revealed to him as he brings his envy into the light and rest of God's sanctuary is what I mentioned at the end of the last point. Namely, God himself is the reward. He sees, God, you really are worth it. The faithful obedience of walking the narrow path of the righteous, it's worth it. That to get to hold to hold on to God, to, to have Him as your treasure, it's worth more than any wealth or power or, or possessions or blessing that this world could ever offer us. You see, he writes there in verse 25 and 26 again, Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. It's not saying there's nothing else good in this world. He's saying compared to you, there's nothing else that's good in this world. You are the greatest treasure I have. My flesh and my heart may fail. God is the strength of my heart, my portion forever. That word portion, end of verse 26, is a reference to the allotment of the different pieces of the promised land that was handed out to God's people when they crossed over the Jordan to take possession of the promised land. Asaph is reminded here that to have God is to have the fullness of all his blessings and all of his promise included. God is the, the portion that's given to me. So I think it's clear that this entrance into the sanctuary of God was truly a, a transforming experience for Asaph in the midst of an oppressive struggle with envy. It completely reoriented him back towards the way of the righteous and reestablished his conviction that he began Psalm 1, Psalm 1 with, namely, that, 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 or this Psalm, in verse 1, sorry, that, that God is good to Israel. It reorients him back to that. God, you, you really are good to those who seek to walk according to your ways. But two things that emerge as well from Asaph's reorienting revelation have particular relevance to us today as we learn the importance of bringing our feelings of envy to God as well. The first is what we see in verses 21 to 22. Look with me there. He kind of steps out of his, uh, uh, his soliloquy, if we can call it that here. He steps out of what he's saying and almost like thinks back to to how he was thinking in relation to now what he sees. And he says, when my heart was grieved, when my spirit was embittered by all the envy I was feeling, I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before you, which I think is a very telling admission, actually. 
the psalmist is making when he sees that as a result of this reorienting revelation from God, he's come to see just how disoriented and distorted his previous perspective on everything that he was observing was. He sees now, man, I, didn't, I wasn't seeing this right at all. How wrongly he had viewed the circumstances that provoked him to envy, as well as the circumstances that ultimately they, they put him in the place of judging God. He sees, man, I, I didn't see this right at all. Those of you who maybe know the story of Job, for example, he, he, he came to almost the exact same conclusion as this after offering his extended complaints to God after the seeming injustice that he was experiencing despite his piety. When God finally answers Job's complaint, his response similarly is, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Or to put it another way, if you've ever tried to rescue a wild animal that's trapped in something and had you know, the mess scratched out of your hand as a result, you know from God's perspective just how ignorantly, just how violently we can respond to one who's actually trying to help us because we can't see, what's, we can't see what their action is trying to accomplish. So we just, we're like a brute beast flipping out, not realizing what's actually going on. And I think the takeaway for us here is this. Knowing just how limited our perspective is in relation to, to God and how easy it is to misjudge his actions or apparent inaction and to act like a brute beast towards God as a result, it should cause all of us to be much, much slower to jump to these kind of conclusions, be it uh, envying of the arrogant or standing in judgment over God. And conversely, you should be way, way quicker to doubt yourself to doubt your own conclusions and to trust the character of God that we know even when you don't understand his actions. The second thing that emerges from Asaph's reorienting revelation grows out of the first, and you see it in verse 15. As Asaph comes to recognize, he says, if I had said, I will speak thus, as in, if I had said, it's pointless to follow God, it's, uh, in vain I kept my heart pure, in vain I've washed my hands in innocence. He says, if I had said, I'll speak like that, I would have betrayed your children. There's a lot we could say about uh, all that relates to that verse alone, but big picture, I think, what, what we just saw about how limited our perspective is as it relates to judging the activity of God, what, what he's saying is that there's also a community responsibility. There's a community responsibility I need to consider in my responses to others on top of the way that I'm responding to God. It's not just how I respond to Him when I misjudge circumstances. It's also how I respond to the people around me. I have a community responsibility for how I respond to these things. For on the one hand, just to brew and stew on our misguided feelings of envy and not bring them to God causes us to slip further and further down the hill of confident faith. But on this other hand, to, to, to just freely spread our feelings of envy with God's family can cause others to slip in their own faith unjustifiably. Now hear me, this is not to suggest that we can't share these struggles that we're having with other trusted brothers and sisters and say, man, I'm, I'm seeing all this, this is making it really hard. No, we, sh- we should do that. Because then we get an outside perspective who can look in and be like, actually, I don't think that's right. Look at this. So that's one of the benefits of doing that. What I'm talking about here is the kind of sharing where it's just that cynical, bitter comments like, oh yeah, the blessing of God. This kind of stuff, which actually can, it can take those who may be around us who are much weaker in their faith and cause them to begin to doubt the God that they're trying to learn to trust. 
Because you're taking your limited perspective understanding and just saying, oh, I guess God's not faithful. I guess he can't be trusted. That can be deeply damaging to others when you just share that way. So what the psalmist is saying here is that kind of sharing, that kind of speaking is a betrayal. A betrayal both of God who has blessed you, who is good to you, as well as to his children. Particularly when we know, man, we, we're not seeing the full picture here. We, we can't understand what he's doing. Nearing the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus makes this very relevant plea to all that we've been looking at this morning. He says this, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. What Psalm 73 does is it forces us to really wrestle with whether or not we believe that. Wrestle with the truth of that claim as well as the claim of Psalm 1 that we looked at last week that said hey, those, God has this kind of loving oversight over those who walk according to his ways and he turns from those who walk against his ways, they perish. It forces us to wrestle with what we think about that. Do we really believe that? But again, the benefit for us that we've been able to see now through as Asaph processes through these very same emotional responses that we have, and then it gives us the opportunity to learn from him. Hopefully we learn from him how essential it is in our own lives to bring God these feelings of envy, to bring it to him first. Again, it's easy to feel, like we're going to see all throughout this series, that there's something about this a feeling of envy that's unpresentable. I can't bring that to God. I got to clean this up first before I can bring him in here. I got I to gotta make this right and then I can come to him and say, hey, I, I was feeling this right. No. What we're seeing here is the encouragement of Psalm 73 is God wants us to bring these parts of ourselves to him first, unprocessed. Bring it to him first. In fact, it's saying seeking to actually understand them on our own is likely going to be more harmful to our faith. If you wait to figure it out and process it first and then bring it to him, it's actually going to be more harmful to you than if you just brought it to him first. It's going to be more harmful to staying on the, the, the way of the righteous than helpful. Why? Because only God can give us those, he can give those feelings the necessary perspective needed in order to rightly understand them. That's why he wants us to bring it to him so the light of his revelation can reveal it for what they are. So what about you? What, what, what response is God calling you to make today? How has his revelation here in his word begun to do a work of reorientation in your own heart? Maybe you're here this morning and, and you're in a season of deep struggle right now and, you, and you've wrongly judged God as being unjust and unfair of you in his treatment of you based on how you've been seeking to follow him. Maybe you're feeling like, God, you, you owe me a better existence than this. Look at how I've been trying to follow you. Maybe you begin to become envious of the lifestyle and apparent ease that you see all around you in the lives of people who have no reverence or reference for God in their lives, and it's causing you to lose the foothold of your faith. And it's causing you to wonder whether the effort it takes to follow the way of the righteous is really worth it in the end. 
If that's where you're at this morning, I pray you'd hear and follow the encouragement of Psalm 73 and bring those feelings of envy to God. Bring it to him. Just simply acknowledge this is how I'm feeling and just confess it. God, this is where I'm at right now. I don't understand this. I can't see why you do that and not do this. Bring it to him. Bring him those feelings of envy and, and invite his reorienting revelation into your life. Say, help me understand from your perspective what's going on here. Now, that doesn't mean God's going to explain every detail to you, nor does he make any such promise. But when you come to see the truly momentary passing nature of all that this world calls success, as well as the infinitely superior worth that you already have in Jesus in the light of his presence, I believe that you too can come to conclude once again with the psalmist that God surely is good to his children and that he does reward those who seek to walk according to his way. Amen.